Hello, my name is Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this is my podcast, Lost in the Rabbit Hole, The Dark Side of Folktales. I have a doctorate in mythological studies and a master of fine arts and creative writing, but long before any of that, I've loved folktales. Folktales, fairy tales, myths, legends, urban legends, all things story. And this is a podcast about some of the lesser-known things, the hidden things, the things found deep inside of tales that we perhaps unknowingly give over to our children. But these stories, they never let us fully go. They haunt the corners of our dreams, stalk us in our fantasies. We can't shake them loose. And the rabbit hole, it's just an ordinary thing. We pay no mind to it sitting out there in the corner of the garden or the middle of a field or maybe tucked into the roots of a tall tree. We pay no mind to it at all. That is, until we fall in. Join me as I lose myself in this unknown space, this place, this rabbit hole, and rediscover so many of the things left behind. But before we begin, I want to give a warning. I will be talking about the grotesque, foul, horrific things left out of children's versions of folktales. There is violence in these stories and broken societal taboos. If you are at all vulnerable to such information, please turn back. story of folktale may seem harmless, but it's a loaded and potentially aggressive act. You're accusing a story of mattering, of having generational meaning, something homey and comforting and small with just this designation, folktale, takes on significance. It's no longer just beginning, middle, end, no longer entertainment for entertainment's sake. It's now symbolic, loaded with metaphoric importance. Folktales are the stories of the folk, They're our stories. They represent what is most important to the people who tell them. The good, the bad, sometimes terrifying. They matter because they come from the soul of the community. They come from the heart of the folk. Think about the story of Little Red Riding Hood. As soon as I say the title, I'm sure you pictured the little girl in her red cape running through the forest to her grandmother's house. You know how it goes. Her mother gives her a basket to take through the woods to grandma's, And the last thing Mother says is, don't talk to strangers and stay on the path. Of course, almost immediately, the little girl wanders off the path to pick a flower, maybe chase a butterfly. It doesn't matter. The big bad wolf sees her and comes up with a plan of his own, a plan to eat her. Depending on the version, she is saved by a huntsman or a woodcutter, or she isn't saved. Sometimes she saves herself. Depending on the version, Grandma always gets eaten, but sometimes Grandma's recovered. This story was first published as part of a collected work in 1697 by the French author Charles Perrault for the entertainment of the elegant but supremely bored members of the court of Louis XIV. Later, about a hundred years later, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm published their version of the story, also in a collected work. There were many differences, many changes. One change was that the girl became younger. 
For Perot, the story is one of young women out in the world inviting the attention of wolfish men by being provocative. For the Grimms, the story is about teaching girl children particularly their place in the home. You can hear the subtleties of the beginnings of each. Perot writes it this way. Once upon a time, there lived in a certain village a little country girl, the prettiest creature who was ever seen. Her mother was excessively fond of her, and her grandmother doted on her still more. This good woman had a little red riding hood made for her. It suited the girl so extremely well that everybody called her Little Red Riding Hood. Perot's use of little before country and not girl suggests it's somewhat removed. The girl isn't little. The space she's from is. And his implication is that her prettiness is some kind of a burden. Her mother's excessive love is somehow inappropriate, as is the doting that her grandmother employs. Audiences instantly recognize the danger in loving this girl too much. Worse, she's out there in the world and people notice her. People admire her. Men people. And this is bad. Like maybe selfies are bad. The Grimms, though, with a quiet nuance, changed the story. Their opening goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a dear little girl who was loved by everyone who looked at her but most of all by her grandmother. And there was nothing that she would not have given to the child once she gave her a little hood of red velvet, which suited her so well that she would never wear anything else. So she was always called Little Red Riding Hood. Here we have a dear little girl. And this child, for she is a child in this story, is loved by all who see her. The movement of the words changes her age and also makes her instantly cherished. The love of her grandmother is a representation of the child's perfection. The endings, too, are subtly different. In Perot's version, after the proverbial exchange of, Grandmother, what big teeth you have got, to which the wolf replies, All the better to eat you up with. The wolf falls on top of the girl, a euphemism for other things, sexual things, and he eats her up. And that's the end of that story. But in case you miss his point, Perot gives a lesson. He has an afterthought, a moral, that he includes. And the moral is, children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers. For if they do so, they may well provide dinner for a wolf. I say wolf, but there are various kinds of wolves. There are also those who are charming, quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, and sweet who pursue young women at home and in the streets. And unfortunately, it is these gentle wolves who are the most dangerous ones of all. The Grimms intentionally made the story about a child and four children. First, they add a big strapping hunter woodsman who runs in and saves the day. The hunter cuts open the wolf's belly spilling out both the girl and her grandmother. And then they punish the wolf, which is an interesting turn, by filling his stomach with stones, and the wolf falls over dead. They add a second ending, where the girl once again is on the path to grandmother's house. A wolf approaches, but now she doesn't stray. And when the wolf follows her to her grandmother's, she and grandmother drown him. Of course, this is all about who's listening, 
who the story is for and being told to. These sorts of stories are often literal, and death through the jaws of a monster is particularly extreme. The motives of the wolf change, as does the gender of the protagonist, depending on the audience. Perrault's readers were those bored adults idling around at King Louis's court. His story, then, was a body tale of a young virgin being raped by a hairy man, a wolf man. And rape in this society was any man having unsanctioned sex with a woman. And the sanctioning came from her father in the church rather than from being of her personal consent. Perrault was also the first to put the girl in a red hood, a chaperon. And it wasn't an accident that this word sounds so much like a chaperone, who is someone who looks after and supervises another person or a group of people. Young women had to be attended by a chaperone any time that they were going to be in mixed gender company or even just out in the world. The word at its root implies to cover or protect. Perrault was making a play on these words. The Grimm's, though, turn the stories into nationalistic lessons of morality with fairly clearly defined codes of conduct. In fact, the collected works were even used in schools as literal lessons. They wanted a guide for how mothers should direct their children and how children must behave out in the public, meekly, not drawing attention to oneself and always following instructions. But variants of this tale were not originally for either of those audiences. Perot lifted it out of the workaday stories that the women would tell each other as they did their daily tasks. In Perot's version, as in the older oral versions of the tale, the wolf is actually called a bijou, or werewolf. And while we can't really know if there's a connection, these variants of the Little Red Riding Hood story all seem to come from a specific area of France where, during the later portion of the Middle Ages, there were werewolf trials of men who had killed children and claimed to have done so while in werewolf form. One particularly gruesome case occurred in 1521. Reports of that time, found in journals and diaries and legal papers, show that people were afraid to walk through the woods and the fields alone because werewolf attacks were so common. They brought the animals inside at night, and in some places, even during the day, and children were admonished to stay close to home. Hunting parties were formed, and men would head into the woods to find these werewolves. Once found, the shapeshifters were put on trial. Much like the witch trials of the Middle Ages, these werewolf trials, something akin to satanic panic in the 1980s, cropped up in villages all across Europe, and they continued through the 17th century. The story that Charles Perrault most likely borrowed from the peasant woman was one called The Grandmother's Tale. In this version, the girl encounters a bijou on her way into the woods, and he chats her up. She stops at a crossroad, and he specifically asks her, which path will you take, the path of needles or the path of pins? Like campfire stories and sleepover stories and urban legends shared to while away the time, here at this crossroad, and I will be spending some time in a later episode talking about crossroads, but here at this crossroad, she makes a choice, and her adventure changes depending on her choice. Also, in some versions, the bijou chooses her path for her. It's like a lot of scholars have said, that we see a lot of sewing and weaving and spinning in tales, and we do, 
And maybe it's because these were women's stories told by women to other women. These were stories that featured turning cloth into clothes, a constant part of life for women right up until the 20th century in industrialized countries. Things like baking bread for the family and for the entire farm or even village, or washing the laundry. These kinds of jobs were usually done by a group. Why, even today, there are sewing circles and quilting bees, right? These can be tedious, boring tasks when one doesn't have anything else to focus on. Women's stories centered around the things that mattered or involved women. Because this was communal work, when women were left alone to get it done, this was their time to also sit and share news and gossip and hopes and dreams and, of course, stories. With this in mind, maybe the paths mean something specific to the women who are telling the story. One scholar, Yvonne Verdier, in her work on this oral tradition, studied the villages where this tale may have originated. She says that girls at the significant age of 15 were sent to spend a winter with a local seamstress. Nominally, the girl was there as an apprentice. But more, she was there to be kitted out with new clothes. The phrase was, they have been gathering pins. This was a societal ritual that marked their transition from being a girl to becoming a young woman. And the pin was long used as a symbol of this moment in time. As recently as the 1960s, there was a reference to being pinned, as in a boy pinning his class insignia over his sweetheart's heart to show she belonged to him. The path of needles, on the other hand, is explicitly sexual, with threading the needle a euphemism for sex. In the grandmother's tale, when our girl says, I'll take the path of pins, the bijou replies, why then, I'll take the path of needles, and we'll see who gets there first. So he's turned it into a contest for her. They aren't so unequal in terms of status, at least as far as we can tell in this version, and the story continues in a way that we all would recognize. She goes her way, and he goes his. Of course, he gets to the grandmother's cottage first. But this is where it gets dark, even a little gruesome. The bijou kills the grandmother and leaves aside a small amount of blood and flesh and bone. In one version, he grinds some of that bone into the bread dough that grandmother was about to bake. He puts on grandmother's nightcap and shawl, and he climbs into the curtained bed in the corner of the small cottage, there to wait. When the girl arrives, she calls out that she's brought a basket of food and drink. The bijou tells her to come in to get warm, and then he asks her if she's hungry. When she says she is, he tells her to bake off the bread, cook the meat that's laid out and ready to go, and to drink some of the wine that he's left for her. In some versions of this story, the preparation of the food and drink can get very elaborate, likely with the listeners hollering and groaning as the storyteller dresses it all up for that effect. Once the food and drink are ready, she does as she's bid, but immediately on having some bread, a wind blows through the window and warns her that it is her grandmother's bone, ground up as meal and laid in the dough. From the shadows of the bed, the bijou calls out to pay no heed to the cracks in the windows. Well, she minds her grandmother and eats the bread. Is the wind, the spirit of the grandmother, gasping out one last cry to save her beloved granddaughter? 
It could be. Spirits haunted the woods where Grandmother lived all alone, and it's said that those who truck with spirits often become one themselves. Next, our girl is told to eat the meat, and just as she is about to take a bite, a little cat runs in and says, Stop, stop, you're eating the flesh of your grandmother. Is grandmother a kindly old woman, or is she a witch, a crone, living by herself and making potions? Is this little black cat her familiar? In the witch-hunting fantasies of early modern Europe, they, wolf and crone, are the kind of beings associated with arcane knowledge. They are wild things, maybe possessing pagan secrets. Maybe they are possessed by those secrets. The bijou tells the girl to toss her shoe at the bothersome cat and finish the meat. And because she's a good girl, she does as she is bid. All she has left to do is drink the wine, and grandmother is completely eradicated. The bijou tells her to hurry and drink it down. But as the girl is lifting the glass to her lips, a bird flies in and cries out, Stop, stop! That is your grandmother's blood! The bijou says, Toss your other shoe at the silly bird and finish your wine. The girl does as she is bid. Then she says, I can't get into bed in these dirty skirts. And the bijou says, Take them off and toss the skirts into the fire, dear girl. Well, she does. One by one, she explains that each piece of clothing is too dirty to allow her to climb into the dark bed with the bijou. And one by one, he insists that she remove the offending piece of clothes and toss it into the fire until the girl is completely naked and all of her clothes are destroyed. Now, come join Grandmother here in this nice warm bed, the bijou calls out. But the girl tells the bijou that she has to relieve herself. Frustrated, the bijou says. Do it in the bed, my child. This is the moment when the girl refuses. The bijou insists that she tie a sash to her ankle, and then she climb out the window to relieve herself. She knows now, though, that she's in danger. She does do as she's bid, but once outside the window, she ties the sash to a tree and runs as fast as she can to the river where the washerwomen are doing the laundry for the village. She tells them of her predicament, and they agree to help her. They get her across the river, and she runs the rest of the way home. The bijou follows her to the banks of the river and demands that the washerwomen help him cross. They agree. Of course, of course. We would love to help. Once he is halfway across the river, they drown him. So how safe is the girl, though, after having consumed the bone, the flesh, and the blood of her grandmother? Some scholars have suggested that this is a story of the necessity of the biological transformation, that the young must consume the old, much as a fetus consumes its mother. The next generation replaces the prior generations. Daughters become mothers, mothers become grandmothers, and the circle will be closed with the arrival of their children's children. The moral here, though, is that grandmothers will be eaten. On a practical level, these are not people who would go to the grocery store to buy a chicken already gutted and plucked and cleaned, put in a pretty cellophane package. There were no mini-marts, no Instacart or Uber Eats, bringing food already made. If you wanted to eat a meal, you had to kill it yourself. After hunting or raising it, 
If you wanted a carrot or a baked potato, you would have to trade for those things or grow them yourselves. To have even one meal was an involved and often difficult task. Both Perrault and the Grimm's hinted at these elements in their versions, but they didn't linger on the gruesomeness. As we've seen, the Grimm's ended their story shortly after the gobbling up of the grandmother and with a rescue. But Charles Perrault, unlike the Grimm's, again, was not writing for children. He included a shortened version of the striptease, for it worked with the kind of satirical and body story that he wanted to tell. At its core, regardless of the version, people are drawn to this specific tale because of its themes, however explicit, of food, sex, death, survival, and mortality. Like all tales, this story can help us make sense of our own world. Maybe your everyday choices aren't as immediately dire as Little Red Riding Hood's, but maybe they are. In this tale, we see the conflict between vulnerable innocence and brute force. We see choices confronted, and even when we make the wrong ones, don't listen to our inner voice warning us, we still can recover. These are the essential, even primal elements of life played out in a story of unambiguous narrative, at least for the audience. And because of that, we have a freedom to make the bad choice or even to play a different role. Today, I may be the girl in the red cape, but tomorrow I might be the bijou. And don't we all sometimes feel a little like grandmother, just doing our thing out there, waiting for someone to visit, someone we love, and then somehow it can go horribly wrong. Or maybe one day I want to be the little black cat, the one that knows all of the bad things that are happening. And then, yeah, no one listens. Instead, maybe I get a shoe tossed at me for even trying. This has been the first episode of Lost in the Rabbit Hole, The Dark Side of Folk Tales. Thank you so much for listening. In future episodes, I will explore many other dark, shadowy corners of some of our favorite tales. So please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing. You can also find Lost in the Rabbit Hole on Twitter, on Instagram, or you can visit my webpage at catkeefernewman.org, where I will have updates on all projects that I'm working on. I am Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this was Lost in the Rabbit Hole.